0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Just a quick reminder that we're recording remotely right now, which of course is not my preference, but appreciate your patience with the sound quality. Today's guest is someone who has become a real voice and advocate in the mental health world. Jen Gotch is someone I've been wanting to have on the show for a while, and I'm so thrilled to have her on today.
1: Welcome, Jen. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Very excited to have you. So for those who don't know you, which I have a real issue with if that's the case, can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do?
1: Sure. Um, What you'll find is these quite simple questions are usually the toughest for me to answer. (laughs) And then the ones that would be like, I don't know how to answer that, I can answer seamlessly. (laughs) So you're right. I am Jen Gotch. I am the founder and chief creative officer of a women's lifestyle company called Bandel. I am now also an author. As of last Tuesday, (laughs) I wrote what I like to call a self-help memoir called The Upside of Being Down. And like you mentioned in the intro, I guess I am also a mental health advocate, a reluctant at first, but starting to embrace that.
0: How does it feel to say that you're an author?
1: Really cool. It's like, I always wanted to write a book before anything else and through everything else. And I think I have a lot of other things to be proud of, but I'm like, this is cool. Now I think I'm cool. (laughs) (laughs) up until that point, the jury was out. But now I'm like, no, you're cool now. Your parents think you're cool? They think I'm really cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: you were diagnosed with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and ADD. Can you give us a snapshot of when and how you were diagnosed with each of those things? I know a lot of it's in the book, but just for those who don't know anything.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, I went undiagnosed for the first 23 years of my life. um, And at 23 had a minor nervous breakdown that landed me in just a general practitioner's office who identified that he felt I had depression and put me on Prozac, which is both a good and bad thing, but mostly good. Um, It was very exciting for me to have a diagnosis and a name to put to a lot of the feelings I was having that I didn't understand. Also important to consider that I'm 48. <laughs> so when this was going on, there wasn't like internet, social media. So the awareness level of mental health issues was much lower. And I think that's a big reason why I got to that point in my life with all of this struggle and not having anyone identify it. Subsequently moved from Florida out to California, got myself into therapy. And my therapist and I sort of started to realize that there were other things at play here, not just depression. Um, And that is when the ADD and anxiety diagnosis came in through a psychiatrist we were working with. And again, all felt Good, not bad. I know for some people, it's like they don't want that diagnosis. I really, I love information. I love learning about things. So to be able to have those touchstones for me were very helpful. What happened over time, though, because I was taking medication for those things, is that the medication I was taking for depression actually started to exacerbate the actual condition I had, which was bipolar disorder. Um, I have bipolar 2, which is really the hallmark of it is depression. You don't see a lot of mania in that particular type of bipolar. So it's very commonly misdiagnosed as just depression. But oftentimes, if you're just taking an antidepressant and not also taking a mood stabilizer over time, that condition can be exacerbated. And that's what happened with me. But then we got that all sorted out (laughs) with a new psychiatrist. And it's really been, I would not say smooth sailing, because that would be a misrepresentation. But we haven't looked back from that point And that was I don't know, like 17 years ago. So
0: it sounds like you had a really amazing therapist, Laurel who mm-hmm. mentioned in the book majorly. And something that really stood out to me was in chapter five, you acknowledged when you finally had trust in your doctor to help you find the diagnosis that turned out to be the bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what made you trust him more than any of the other doctors
1: that you had been working with? Absolutely. You know, sometimes I think it's easy to recognize who to trust when you've trusted maybe the people you shouldn't be trusting. And I feel like that's sort of where I was. And not to say that any doctor was actively trying to do anything wrong. It's just psychiatry is a Complex form of medicine because there's a lot of guesswork in it. At least there was when I was being diagnosed, because there wasn't necessarily a blood test, you know, it, it's trial and error. And I went through a lot of psychiatrists that were clearly trying to help, but in the end, you know, it never was clicking. And I also was financially not in a great place, so I wasn't going to the top of the line. And After really sort of falling into a very dark place, my family and my therapist and I were like, let's go to like the best of the best, which is what I did. And just the energy and his confidence and his ability to listen to me and be like, here's what I think we should do. Like there was just something in that that felt different than all of my other collective experiences. And he was right. Like, he was right immediately. So, yeah, it was easy to trust him, actually.
0: Did you feel that it was important to get any sort of second opinion or explore if even though you trusted him, maybe there was someone else to,
1: you know, confirm
0: that this was the case?
1: No, I think if it were something like a surgery or something. And it's like, well, I don't know, maybe this is sort of elective, but not, you know, maybe you do want to get a second opinion. I think for this, there's so much work that goes into getting that diagnosis. And I think because I essentially had been getting other opinions for probably seven or eight years at that point, It was like, I'm just gonna go with this guy, which is actually a lot of what psychiatry and therapy is. You know, there has to be some level of trust. Not to say that you shouldn't get a second opinion, but there's so many ways that people try and crack that uh, mental illness nut with medication that I think it would have complicated it more than simplified it.
0: Got it. That makes sense. And at that point, when you were going through this, you know, getting these diagnoses, there wasn't social media, so you didn't no. have the platform that you do have now. Correct.
1: That is correct. There weren't even smartphones. I think I had a pager. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I about
0: those things. So, how did you decide how and when you spoke about this with people? Were you forthcoming about it? Like, how did you navigate those conversations?
1: It was never really a decision for me. I've always been one of those people that is not great at keeping my feelings to myself, sometimes to a fault. Sometimes it's probably a bit of an imposition on a stranger or someone who just happens to be stuck in an elevator with me. But the stigma of mental illness was not something that I felt. From the get-go, I felt not just happy to have the diagnosis, like I mentioned earlier, but sort of excited to talk about it and learn about it and educate people on it. Like that was my natural response. So Instagram eventually became that platform for me. You know, I started out on Instagram, like everyone else, just like posting pictures of my brunch and uh, Mm -hmm. my pets, which was great for a long time. And then I think at some point, I just well before i I was talking about mental health stuff I just wanted it to be more personal I just felt like why does the world need another picture of this with like a funny caption or something so I think I just sort of started somewhere like it, there was not a point where I was like I think I should use this platform to speak about my mental health issues like I'm not really that type of person like I tend to end up in the right place but I always kind of got there by accident. (laughs) And if you've read the book, then you know that I mean that in every aspect.
0: I can picture the line on my Kindle of you saying, and I put this on Instagram two days ago, the line of saying like, you didn't have any plan, you figured it out, it always works out or typically works out in the end. And I was like, that is entirely my life and how I support other people in living their lives too.
1: Yeah. And I think I say in there too, you know, if you're a planner and you love plans, then you should absolutely do that. I mean, the one piece of advice I give is like, if that plan isn't working, you have to be ready to let go and try something else. But yeah, for me, no plans. So it was very organic. And then I think what I noticed quite quickly was the way that those posts were being received. And I do really well with like, positive reinforcement. So I thrive in that environment. So I received so much right out of the gate that it was super enjoyable for me. And then it sort of evolved into sort of the feeling of of a responsibility, but not in a way of like a responsibility you don't want. It's just, it felt like something I should honor because like the question that I get asked a lot is, how did you decide to do that? And how are you so comfortable? And are you never scared? And the fact that it just feels very effortless for me, made it feel like something that was really important. Um, I don't have this podcast anymore, but I did have a podcast a couple of years ago. And once that started and really, and I'm sure you know this and have experienced this, but the intimacy involved with a podcast host and their audience is pretty incredible. And so when that went live, the feedback I got around the mental health discussions was so impactful, that it was just like, okay, well, <laughs> there's certainly no choice in this matter after that. So.
0: I think it's such a good point that you didn't plan this out. There wasn't a
1: content calendar.
0: It wasn't like on this day, this is what I'm going to post with this caption and this photo. It's so clearly Mm -hmm. you're just sharing when you have something to say. And it comes off that way. And I think Mm -hmm. that's why you've gotten the response that you have because no one feels that it's scripted. I mean, there's not even a question that's ever a thing. I have noticed, obviously that you have posted things on Instagram stories and acknowledge that maybe you're going to take things down. How do you decide when you're going to do that? Cause that's obviously an intentional decision.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I realize I say that sort of thing, not a lot, but I can think of a couple times recently and I never do very quickly. People are like, no, don't take it down. I think mm-hmm. sometimes cause I, I do things that where I feel, very vulnerable too. It's not like I'm impervious to it. It's just not a common thing. And so I think sometimes when I'm feeling insecure or that like, is this too self-indulgent or like, it makes me feel very vulnerable. And then I'm trying to honor and protect myself, but also sort of honor this unwritten, uh, unsigned contract (laughs) with my audience. That's like, I'm not going to hold back So I think it's just part of the process, but I don't think I've ever taken anything down. Maybe years and years and years ago, well before mental health stuff, I posted something that made a lot of people angry inadvertently. So I think I eventually succumbed to that.
0: (laughs) But it's interesting that you sort of throw out that
1: threat, but
0: acknowledgement that you may do it, but obviously
1: no one's allowing you to. No. Yeah. And it's more of a, I don't know if this is right or not. And I usually have a lot of conviction in what I post, but sometimes I'm like, I'm just not sure, but I feel compelled to do it, but I, I don't know. So I think it's really insecurity more than anything else. And I mean, there's still a part of me that can feel that way. I
0: think that probably comes with, you know, Living with the different mental illnesses yeah. that you do, obviously. Um, let's talk about work a little bit because it's a huge part of your book and your story. You started Bando, and you then transitioned over to the CCO, as you mentioned. But clearly, are a huge role and huge influence on the brand at this point. In chapter eight, you said a sentence that I wrote down and kept rereading over and over again yesterday, which is there is a very real risk of losing yourself, your health, and your life outside of work if you aren't careful. Mm. And for me, that was very, very clear. But I wonder how it relates to your life now and taking care of your mental health at this point in your life and your career.
1: Sure. Well, all of those things that I said you could lose, I did. (laughs) So I think for me, my relationship with work Had to get so bad and so detrimental and so kind of ugly and pretty at the same time that I got the wake up call. You know, like I wasn't really willing to listen to the little whispers inside of myself that were like, you're working too much, you're putting too much pressure on yourself, you're compromising your relationships and your mental health and all of that. Like I just wasn't ready to listen. So I think, you know, once I sort of hit my my floor, <laughs> my emotional and physical floor, I reprioritized, you know, and that took some time and some sacrifices and an ability to trust other people with things that were very precious to me. But I knew it was for my best interest. And honestly, like my best interest is also Bando's best interest, because if I'm um, feeling compromised, it, it can compromise the business and the brand as well. So there was a lot riding on it. So I felt very motivated to change my relationship to work, which is where I am now. I mean, granted, we're all in a strange space. And even without what's going on in the world, like knowing that I took time to write the book and that I was going to be touring for a couple months, it's been really easy for me to have a little bit of a distanced relationship with Bando. But even before then, I think being responsible with the boundaries of not just mine, but also with employees and just sort of closing up shop at the end of the day, instead of feeling like since I can consistently access work, I should. And really just starting to recognize that at least for me, I realized that in three hours, I can do what could be done in a day, like three very focused hours in the morning. And so then if Part of my day involves not working because I feel like I've been productive and I think there's a lot to be said. And when we're having our downtime and caring for ourselves, what a better employee (laughs) that makes us, you know, those were all things that motivated and motivate me to this day. Yeah.
0: A lot of my listeners, I'm sure know about my health story, which eight years ago I had a major surgery and I was working a super high stress PR job in the beauty industry. Mm. You know that world. You know it's not chill. Mm. And um, <laughs> for me, I refused to let my health be the forefront of my life. And so, even after surgery and being on hardcore pain meds, I was still with my computer typing away. Like I have to get this shit done. I have to get this shit done. And there's this one moment that has been stuck in my head for years of my mom just sort of slamming the computer closed and being like. Enough, like enough already yeah, yeah. and yeah. and it's so hard when you're deep in it and obviously for you it was a passion. I was doing it because I felt a responsibility mm. through my employer, as I'm sure you did to your team and everyone mm-hmm. that you know my health is not the focus here this isn't what matters and I started my business five years ago as a business coach and really recognized the importance of being able to shut off and prioritize things and do things that are fun and spend time with the people that you care about and prioritize your health because without that, you're nothing.
1: Yes, 100%. And like, look at us facing that reality as a planet right now and really the gift in that to say, there are other ways to operate (laughs) in life. And I think it's important that as many people as possible sort of recognize how we can, when we do go back to work, change that relationship and still produce the same amount, (laughs) if not more. Yeah. Support for
0: this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace through a secure online platform and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting BetterHelp.com backslash Made Visible. That's BetterHelp.com slash Made Visible. And now, back to the show. I'm going to call you out and ask you something, which okay. is, get <laughs> ready for it. In your book, you said that your intention was that by the time the book was published, which is a week <laughs> now, you know what this is. That you have a I crying room.
1: That you have a
0: crying room at Bandeau. Do you have
1: that? Absolutely not. And here's (laughs) the beauty. (laughs) The beauty in this very honest answer is that
0: you're not a planner.
1: No, trust (laughs) me, I tried to cram this idea down people's throats, but the reality is the idea that there is a singular person in control of any one company, which is the way that female founders are often portrayed, Um, this makes it very clear that my one ask to please just have this crying room was fully denied, Um, not because anyone didn't want to have it, but because there was only one room in our office that was going to make sense for that. And our director of HR really needed it more than I did. And I was like, well, I guess that's close to a crying room. listen, I hope someday that not only can we have that and that just be a thing, you know, in the meantime, I think what myself and other people are really excited to be doing is to like be able to create space, even if it's not a physical space within an office environment for emotions to be present and accepted.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting that that was such a focus for you and that you have been able to create boundaries while also making it available to people to know that they can be themselves and address stuff at work, because Mm -hmm. it's really not what's accepted in most work settings. And being vulnerable at work is not really something that is encouraged. So how do you think that you've set that tone for your employees?
1: Well, in a couple ways. I mean, first, I would say I didn't know that those were the rules because I had never worked in an office before. Uh, Like Bando is really my first job of this particular nature where you have meetings and that sort of daily accountability in a shared space with a larger group of people. So the foundation of the company wasn't, there was never anything to overcome. Um, Here's what I think. I think I did a bad job at times of allowing emotions into the workplace especially during sort of the time that I was alluding to earlier where I just was compromised. I was just compromised. And so my pain and sadness was visible probably more than what was appropriate. Not to say that I was like walking around the office crying, but I think um, it's even a weird thing for me because my emotions that I would put onto Instagram or Instagram stories is still sort of in the workplace in a weird way, because everyone that works at Bando or I think most of the people follow me. So it was a weird thing that it sort of carried through in that way. But I think once I had my baseline covered and you know felt like I could manage my own emotions, I felt very empowered to create a space where I could start by expressing emotions in a more appropriate way and then encourage the other leaders in our company to do that too. And again, like the whole thing is crying at work and it's a triggering subject for a lot of people, but that's not necessarily what I'm advocating for. I'm advocating for that to be allowed, but I think it's just allowing the range of emotions you know, sheer joy and happiness is also in some offices, like, please be quiet and go to your desk. Like it's sort of allowing for the life experience to trickle into the workplace because we're there more than we are most places. And so I think generally for me, because I truly accept it, that that comes through And just by my behavior alone is what encourages and allows it. I mean, I found that a lot as a leader and like I'm saying, both good and bad, that like I'm essentially setting the tone for what our corporate culture is, whether I like it or not.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think a big thing about that is that you've really created a safe space for people. So Mm -hmm. no matter what the emotion is that they're going through, it sounds like you're making it so that whatever that is, is allowed.
1: Yes, we have to entitle people in every space, in every space. Emotions are so scary for people. And I get that, you know, but in every space, digital, in an office, wherever, like making these things acceptable is so important because they're a huge part of the human experience. It
0: would be so cool to see your version of a company handbook. (laughs) I generally think so many people could learn from you. And you may think that it's a funny thing, but I think that stuff is so outdated. Yeah, And people are learning very, very slowly the importance about talking about mental illness and taking care of yourself and Obviously, corporate wellness is a super hot topic these days, but, mm-hmm. you know, it would be awesome to see mm-hmm. something like that brought into other companies because so many people can learn from this.
1: I love that. That's um, I've never thought of it that way, but I will put it on the list of things that I'd like to write next.
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I know you've already started working on your second book, yeah?
1: Yeah. Yes, I have. I started working on it when I was writing the first book because <laughs> that one was a little stuck. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess I'm I'm here. I was renting a house out in the desert. I'm like, oh, I'm paying for this. I may as well write something.
0: <laughs> but you now have your own house. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sitting in it right now. Looks pretty magical. It really, really is. I, it really, really is. I'm very, very grateful to have this place. So let's
0: dig into your new book. Okay. As I mentioned, this morning, I listened to you on Spiraling mm. with Serena and Katie. Who were on episode 63 of my podcast. And I was so excited to listen to it. Um, But you mentioned that you were heartbroken, understandably so, about having to cancel your book tour because of this crazy coronavirus. Yes. How are you feeling now? Because, you know, it's probably been a few days or a week since you recorded that episode.
1: Yeah, I don't even remember when that was, but definitely a week or two. Um, I feel fine. You know, at first, the heartbreak wasn't really coming through for me, you know, it's sort of the, the tour dissolving happened over like a 10 day period, you know, where as the information was changing every day and my sort of knee jerk response to most things is like, wait, this is going to be okay. We're going to figure it out. Whatever it is, it'll, it'll be fine. This is not the worst thing that could happen. And I realized that there was sadness under that. Sort of optimism that I wasn't allowing myself to feel. And I have to sometimes remind myself that, like, it's okay to feel sad that you don't get the thing that you were really, really, really looking forward to. And I think the fact there was no choice in it, you know, it wasn't something that happened to me. It's just something that's happening. So, so I feel completely fine. I feel strangely fine. about. I, I was texting with my friend yesterday and I was like, how are you doing? And he's just like, I feel very peaceful. And I was like, I do too. It's so weird. So I think, uh, I don't know exactly what that means. I ha- generally have an idea, but thank you for asking about that. And it was a heartbreak. I'm just looking forward, you know, I mean, it allowed other things to happen. I certainly got to rest a lot more than I thought I was going to be resting over the over this exact time that we're in right now.
0: The exact opposite of what you probably were. Yes.
1: (laughs) I kept thinking about that. I'm like, do you know what you would have been doing? Like, get up, honey. You would have been like full on for, you know, six weeks. And then I'm like, do I put on? closed today? Or what? You know, <laughs> I was actually supposed to
0: be in LA. And I had reached out to Amy, your publicist being mm. like, Oh, my God, can I interview her in person? It's just like, Oh, she's going to be traveling like zero chance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, the, the word peaceful is a really interesting one. And I feel like in having lots of conversations with people, through the podcast, through my clients, friends, family, I think that everyone's going through this in different stages and that some people are sort of more manic and anxious and stressed about it. And the next day could be peaceful. And I think that that's sort of the natural way of handling this because no one expected this. No one knows how to handle it. It's never happened before. And however everyone's handling it is normal.
1: Agreed. I mean, I think that everyone is going to be on their own journey for navigating this when it comes to like emotions and our thoughts and all of that. And I feel happy to know that you've seen lots of people tapping into the peace part of that, even if it's not a 24-7 feeling of peace, it's like important to recognize and capture those moments when they come.
0: I agree. I think the times that they're not at peace is when they're sitting on Twitter, scrolling through the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just so dangerous.
1: Here's what I will say that helped me immediately. Since the last presidential election, news in general was very triggering for me. And I do my best to avoid all triggers as someone with an anxiety disorder, like that's anxiety 101 is to avoid triggers. So going into this, I was actually at home in Florida when it really started to ramp up. And my dad's like a news junkie that is he watched so much MSNBC that the logo got burned into his screen on his TV and he had to get a new TV. <laughs> so I realized very quickly, like I'm not going to be able, like I can't be exposed to this. It's also very confusing. So what I've just been doing is like a check in the morning. Uh, like I, New York times does a, they'll send out like a brief um, and a check at night at most. And it has really helped me feel like I'm informed, but not taken on this roller coaster every day of information. And, you know, I don't feel oblivious. I feel like I'm covering myself in the process. So I, I'm only describing that because maybe it will help some of the listeners just feel encouraged that you're not really getting that much more information uh, if you're paying attention to it all day, uh, but you're certainly getting stimulated and maybe not in the best way.
0: It's similar to the way that you talked about being productive in three hours as opposed to a full day. Yeah. Yeah. And just sort of, you know, compacting the time that's actually valuable to be consuming this stuff. And I think that's super helpful. And that's actually a good point. So, what are the other tools that you have found valuable for you for managing, you know, your mental health and ensuring that you're taking care of yourself?
1: What works for you? So much. I mean, it's obviously very front and center in my life. Like, it's number one priority for me to feel mentally and physically well in order for me to show up for people uh, to do my job. So, I set out a couple of years ago to really try and eradicate my anxiety because I realized how much it was keeping me from. And so, sort of the skills I learned in doing that have been a big part of how I protect my mental health. So that's mostly just understanding that the way our minds work, especially when it comes to our thoughts and that ongoing narrative that we hear and the types of thoughts and the relationship we have to them. And I worked really hard to change that relationship to understand that those thoughts are not necessarily real and certainly not true a lot of times and not useful. And so having to sit with them and react to each is not something you have to do. And so being able to find that distance, even if it's like a five second lapse between having a thought and deciding what I want to do with that thought, and changing my relationship to say, like, those don't have to be fact, to me is the single most impactful thing in my day-to-day mental health. Like, Just the most powerful thing. You know, beyond that, really being conscious of like what I'm putting into my body or not putting into my body. Because, you know, for mental illness, there's a lot of research behind how what you put in and how you take care of your body can affect your brain chemistry. So I try and take that seriously. I'm definitely a person of moderation. Like, I I try to recognize when I'm going into like a very extreme realm, one way or the other but I have found that to be very helpful. And then I would say, you know, and I talk about this in the book, like building self-awareness and emotional intelligence and understanding what it is that you're struggling with at any given time, whether it be an actual illness or a circumstance that's very challenging has really helped. And I think now is such a huge opportunity for us all to collectively learn more about ourselves, because in doing that, you end up learning more about everyone. And so I don't know if what you wanted, was more like, I take a bath. (laughs) (laughs) I do all those things to, you know, I do the obvious self-care things because I do think those are very impactful, but I always try and go to more of like a soul level um, when I'm managing those things. You've mentioned
0: that Reiki is valuable for you. Can you talk about what it is for listeners that don't know what it is?
1: Sure. You know, I don't know that I've ever really looked into like the definition, (laughs) but it's energy work essentially. So I think we have seven chakras, Um, but in healing sessions, the healer is basically there to try and unblock stagnant energy. I think it's similar to chi.
0: I think you're explaining this really well. Oh,
1: okay, great. Oh this is wonderful. I'm so glad yeah. to hear it. You could be a Reiki healer if you. Want. <laughs> well, I did do level 1 training a couple of years ago. Oh, amazing. Yeah, cuz I was like, "Wait, I want to do this. I don't know if that's the thing that's my calling, but it was very interesting." But anyways, you know, essentially we're made up of energy and we exist in a world of energy and it's not something that we're trained to Really acknowledge on the level that we could. And also, it's not something that we necessarily attribute feeling good or bad to our energy. But I've always been a huge believer in that. So essentially, it's energy healing. I'm open to trying anything, especially when it comes to healing. But I need evidence to truly believe it, you know, and not everything I've tried has resonated, but Reiki from the very first experience, which for me has now probably been two or three years up till, you know, the virtual Reiki (laughs) that I did with my healer (laughs) earlier this week that strangely worked. um, It has had such a profound impact on how I feel and how I can take a lot of those things and heal myself when I'm feeling that way, it's just been incredible for me. I've sent a lot of people there. Some people go back time and time again. Some people never go again. Just like anything else, it's not for everyone. But I think if you're open to the idea of us being forms of energy and that there are things you can do to remedy issues within your own energy, it's worth a shot. I mean, everything's kind of worth a shot right now. So...
0: Yeah, I've had it done a few times. And it's Mm. incredible what comes out of it. My mom ran a holistic healthcare center when I was in high school. So that was super out there in, you know, whatever year that was. Sure. It was still something that I was like, huh, this is interesting. This sounds and feels like it works or did something. Yeah. The other thing is, is that you acknowledge that you're very open to trying things and seeing what kind of solutions you can get. And I know you are, pro medications as well, and recognizing what kind of things work for you. And you started the movement of the hashtag my favorite meds. Can you talk about what medications have played a role in your life or how medications have played a role in your life? And why you decided to talk about this on Instagram like that?
1: Sure. Well, I will say first and foremost, I really feel like Georgia from my favorite murder should be given full credit for that hashtag. Cause I'm not, I'm a very reluctant hashtagger. Um, <laughs> what I did was I posted about my medication, which I had done before, but I just posted about it, not really thinking that I was like having this super impactful post. It, it just, I wanted to talk about what I was doing at the time. And I think she saw it and got inspired by that and shared what she was taking with her followers. And then that whole thing sort of just took off. But again, I think for me, sort of in the same way that the diagnoses are not intimidating for me, like the fact that medication is a part of how I treat my mental health issues is not, even though I know that's a somewhat controversial issue, is not anything that I'm Scared to talk about because it's the thing that has worked for me. And I've been on and off meds. It's not, you know, I've tried it all different ways. Taking them makes sense for me. And so many people do and really do carry a lot of shame with that. And so it's just another one of those things. If I can just treat it as a matter of fact, think like if I had diabetes, it wouldn't be weird that I took a medication. So if my relationship to my medication is is that is that this is not weird to me at all. And I can speak and operate with that tone. I feel like it's very empowering for other people. So that's why I do it.
0: I love that. The reason I named this podcast made visible was for that exact reason to raise the awareness and help people come out and share that they're not the only people going through what they're going through. You know, when I was younger and not getting a diagnosis and having any sort of answers, I felt completely alone, as I know so many of my listeners and past guests have. And that is what this is all about. Sharing is helping other people feel like we're all in this together. And that is certainly the case right now with the current state of the world. But the interesting thing is that you put an amazing, amazing optimism On everything that you share. And it's not coming from this woe is me, sappy, feel bad for me standpoint. And your brand is so happy and vibrant. How do you see the world that way? And, you know, based on reading your book, it seems that you've always been that way.
1: Yeah. Well, I talk in the book about sort of realizing that I, at a younger age was more of a negative thinker and making that conscious decision to shift to optimism when I was in college. And I don't really know. I'm again it's like I don't know why I do half the stuff I do. Maybe half and half might be a low, (laughs) a low number. But it is one of those things that has served me really well throughout my life and throughout the challenges, big and small, that I have faced. Um, The ability to see an upside or as an optimist want to dig in and figure out how, you know, something can be made better, how suffering can be shorter is just such a powerful thing that it's like a hard thing not to choose, You know, I talk a lot about resilience as well. And I think optimism is a huge factor in resilience. So it's just a natural thing. You know, like what I say, you know, a lot of people are like, how are you doing that right now? It's like, it's, it's quite offensive to some people. But I think the way you start is recognizing the power in it, recognizing that in being optimistic, you're not closing your mind off to the horribleness of any situation. You're just saying, I believe that everything will be okay. And I'm not defining what okay is. I'm not setting up what that has to be. I just know that whatever it is will be okay. And that takes some faith, but I think that's important. And like the small thing you can do to challenge yourself is like, just see if you can find one upside to any situation can be a really weird thing, can feel super trivial. But I think starting to create those neural pathways to get your brain wired to go there is really important. And to me is like one of the first things that you can do to pivot your thinking.
0: I love that such a great way of putting it. Do you ever get pushback or negative feedback on being so vulnerable and sharing so much of yourself?
1: Mm-mm. No. I think the only time there's pushback is sometimes my optimism is too much for people. But the sharing part, I don't think I've ever had even a singular thing that's like, can you stop sharing? Like, I don't think I've had anything but positive
0: Yeah. Well, and it's clear that you're resonating with people. And as you said, you're all about positive reinforcement. So you're going to keep sharing if they're going to keep responding the way that they do.
1: Totally. That's exactly right.
0: Anything else that we didn't address, especially as it relates to, you know, the invisible side of mental illness, anything that you want to make sure we acknowledge?
1: You know, obviously, The theme of your podcast and how that applies to mental illness is so huge. And I think just the reminder for people that although it does feel so singular as an experience, especially because we experience so much of it within our own minds, it is a very common thing. So you are absolutely not alone in your suffering. And the quicker that you're able to embrace that concept and learn about what it is you're struggling with and start to talk about it the quicker you will have physical evidence of that.
0: Thank you for saying that of course. Where can people learn more about you get a copy of your book and hopefully show up at your book tour whenever <laughs> that, you know happens online and or in person.
1: Well, I think the best things to do are probably to follow me and Bando on Instagram because most of that information is funneled through those channels. Um, And the book is for sale in so many places digitally. So Amazon's always like the obvious place to start, but we're selling it on bando.com as well, along with thousands of other places so you can't find it really in a bookstore because you can't go to a bookstore right now but lots of those stores have digital channels that they're selling it on i think that's it
0: awesome thank you thanks for tuning into made visible we hope you learned about something new today if you enjoyed this episode please take a few minutes to subscribe rate and review the podcast on itunes we can't do any of this without your support Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Gracio for the design.